chatted with people. I didn't, I didn't have any questions to answer so much, but uh, there was a lady, and I, I apologize that I don't always remember names very well, but I think your name is Beth, and if Beth is here, we were sitting right around in this area chatting. Yes. Is Beth your name? Okay. <laughs> I would like to see you afterwards because I, I have an idea that I wanted to, to suggest to you. And uh, <laughs> she's giving me the thumbs up. I like that. <laughs> okay. And if anyone else has uh, questions or um, testimony that you'd like to share, I love to sit afterwards and hear that. Now, there was another comment that it, you can, if you don't have time to wait around, you can write it on a piece of paper and hand it to Karen, who's my partner in ministry, and she's standing there in the back. And someone handed her a comment yesterday as they left that, that showed me I had not communicated as clearly as I had hoped. And so I wanted to come back to that point briefly. Yesterday when we talked about how to know the will of God in particular situations, changes and challenges we might be facing, I shared how Pastor Mark Finley uh, once gave me a picture of a four-legged stool and gave everybody, but it went into my heart. And he shared how he approaches finding God's will like a four-legged stool. One leg is honest and prevailing prayer over a period of time. He says the deeper and the, and the more um, heavy the decision is, the longer he wants to be in prayer before he makes it. So prayer is one of the legs. Looking in the Bible for principles that either directly apply or that can provide a framework for finding an answer in a particular situation would be the second leg. And remember, we've been talking about that. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. So those are the first two legs. The third leg would be seeking godly counsel from brothers and sisters in Christ. Proverbs says, in the mouth of many counselors, wisdom is established. And then the fourth leg would be providential circumstances and leading. And that when he Face decisions, not every one of those legs would always be in place, but they were the foundation principles that he looks for in seeking God's will and the decisions he faces. So I first heard him use that over 18 years ago, and uh, I have put that into practice many times throughout my life uh, with great blessing. Well, yesterday when I shared that, I um, added another thought that it didn't, it didn't come across perhaps as clear as I, I would have wished. Uh, what I was trying to convey is that sometimes when we face decisions and we spend time in all of those things, time in prayer, time in the word, godly counsel, looking for providential circumstances, sometimes we can still not be quite sure in the options that we're facing. For example, suppose that I was given uh, two ministry opportunities, both of them wonderful um, blessings, and I've prayed, I've read God's word, looked for leading, and they still are seemingly equal in my mind. But I need to make a decision between one or the other. At that point, I would prayerfully lay before God everything that he already knew I was thinking. And I would acknowledge to him the, the option that I was leaning toward taking between the two good options. And I would ask him to please either confirm that decision or to clearly show me that that was not what he would have me to do. Yesterday, what I said is that I would tell God what I was considering. When I used the word tell, I did not mean that I would 
in a sense, dictate to him which of those two choices I was making. I didn't mean it in that sense. What I meant was I would acknowledge to him in prayer what he already knew I was thinking and then ask for his leading in the option either to confirm where I was leaning toward going or to bring me to the place that he had picked for me. So prayer is, again, it's coming into that connection with God so closely, like a branch is connected to the vine, that we don't move and live apart from that connection. So today I want to look at two more of the principles that I have been coming to in prayer that have been a blessing to me. And I also want to look at two questions that uh, were were large in my mind as I asked God for a deeper understanding, and I know that they're in, in the minds of many people. Uh, one of them was, was well phrased. Uh, I'm going to actually read to you an email that I received on our website. By the way, our ministry website is at the bottom of your handout sheets, and we'd love to, to hear from you with any questions or comments. And on the ministry, what we prayed, uh, prayed for and prayerfully designed the website to be is it's a, 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 a resource for spiritual encouragement. So if you come on there, there's a a wonderful devotional section with all kinds of inspirational quotations and writings and so forth. So if sometime you want just a a time uh, to sit in, be refreshed, I hope you'll visit our website, and that's down there at the bottom. But this email came in. Hi, Kelly. Last Sunday, I watched a rerun of Dwight Nelson's church service where he showed a YouTube clip of HMS Richard Sr., describing a time when, as a teenager, he saw Ellen White preach in person. In that clip, he described something that made me cry. How, when she prayed, she said, my father, not our father. And she proceeded to pray as though she was just talking to God with him right there beside her. It impressed me so much to know that she felt so close to God that it left such an impression on Elder Richards. That's the way I want to pray, but it's just not happening yet. Some days I pray, and I really mean it. And other days, it's just words, I think. And that is an issue that all of us, at some time or another, will likely encounter. It feels like words. Now, we addressed that earlier in the week when we talked about our feelings are not a barometer of reality. So we can't just, even though our prayers feel ineffective, we cannot conclude they are ineffective. Or if we feel good, we can't conclude that they are good. Feelings do not measure God's reality. But in the times when we long for that deeper connection, when we feel empty, we can be inclined to wonder, Why is this not happening when I'm seeking it? How is it that some pray to God, like HMS Richards saw Sister White do, so close, so connected? How do I get there? These are some of the ways that God has opened my eyes to understand this a little different. First of all, our brains, from the moment that we are born, our brains are being wired with certain habits For example, we all have a way that we will put one shoe on first, whether it's your right shoe or your left shoe. You just put, you've you've got that habit. You don't even think about it. You, You always will just reach for the shoe. We have ways that we do our hair. There's a side of the bed 
that we might choose to sleep on over another. So I see a lot of people nodding. So these are simple life habits that we fall into, and we have communication habits that we develop through the course of our life. And so very often in prayer, we are expressing ourselves based on communication habits that have developed over years. Um, when we try to change those habits because we want to grow in prayer, we can, we can feel awkward. We're stepping out of something that we've just done in a, in a comfort zone in many ways. Just like if you suddenly did a radical change in some area of your life, you would feel awkward as you made that change. Um, prayer language, furthermore, can become habitual or repetitive because very often we are asking about the same situations over and over, and we are thanking God for the same things over and over. And sometimes we can begin to feel like, oh, is this, is this sort of stale? Am I doing this by rote? And so if we recognize this feeling of sameness and we want this living prayer life and we try some new things to, to generate a new um, feeling, a new sense as we're praying, um, they might temporarily have a result and seem useful, but then our prayer habits of a lifetime are pretty deeply ingrained and Sometimes the new things we try, like I said, we just kind of feel awkward doing it. And then we might even be tempted to think we're not very good at prayer because we can't even change when we want to, you know. So what, what, is, what is it with us that, that our language is so dried out and we're just going through the motions? Here are some thoughts that God has shared with us in his word. First of all, it is the Holy Spirit who presents our prayers to God. We don't need to worry about the language. The Holy Spirit is taking our communications to the throne of grace, to the throne of love. We don't have to have any fancy words. He takes the groanings of our hearts. We might not even be able to formulate. We don't even know what to ask for, the Bible tells us in many cases. But he takes our garbled groanings to God. Uh, My friend who had written this email as we... uh, went through some more things that she might try in her prayer life. She shared with me that beginning a prayer journal was something that was very helpful to her. I see some heads nodding. I have done that as well. A prayer journal is a wonderful way to to write down. I, I shared earlier this week how sometimes I will write down my fears, and then I will write down God's word that meets those fears. So I acknowledge the deeper, the more real we are in our communications with God, I use the example, I know Pam a little bit now. We've been talking through the week. We've known each other, seen each other before. But Pam and I don't get a chance to spend a lot of time together. So when we first see each other and we would greet each other with, Hi, Pam, how are you? Pam is going to say what? Fine. Pam is going to say I'm fine. As Pam and I grow closer in friendship and I know what's going on in her life and we meet up, we're going to be able to jump into those situations and get updates and, 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 and begin to jump into the deeper places of our heart. We talk in the most real way with the people we feel closest to. And that's what God is calling us to. And so a prayer journal can help us in some ways in that. Another thing that I like to do personally is I like to pray in different locations, different formats. And one of the things that I personally do a lot because it's meaningful to me is I either sit and look out a window or I go for a walk, 
And I just ask God to open my eyes to his creation around me. And I begin noticing his creation and praising him for it. Telling him just in, in no, no fancy requests, but just, but just speaking to him about the beauty that I see around me. Thanking him, um, marveling at what he has created. Um, I might uh, get a song going in the back of my mind, like all creatures of our God and King or something like that. I might have some Bible promises. So I have these little snippets of, of praise for the beauty around me and Bible verses and hymns. And it just is a time of communication with God in a different environment than, than sitting down and saying, now this is my prayer time. One time someone shared with me something that they find useful, and I, I pass this on to you as well. Um, they would write letters to God. They found that writing a letter was a form of communication they were comfortable with, that they would do with their friends. And so they might write something like, Dear God, uh, things still aren't going well with Linda. And today she called me, and I don't know what to say to her. And it seems hopeless, but I know it's not hopeless for you. Do you have something you could bring to my mind to tell her, some Bible passage or story that I should go and study? And you could show me some deeper understanding that I could share with her. And then also things with my family still aren't great, as you know. And so just sort of this, this letter where you're, where you're sharing with God like you would share with a friend what is on your heart. The point is to start talking to God, not in regular prayer language or prayer form, but in new ways with new words. And we're going to talk about that, another way to do that, a little later. I wanted to read an article that was in the New York Observer, September 13, 1845. September 13, 1845, written by a man named Thomas Salmon. During my residence at Coles Hill, England, I became acquainted with W.W. W. Walford, a blind preacher, a man of obscure birth and connections, and no education but of strong mind and most retentive memory. In the pulpit, he never failed to select a lesson well adapted to his subject, giving chapter and verse with unerring precision, and scarcely ever misplacing a word in his repetition of the Psalms, every part of the New Testament, the prophecies, and some of the histories, so as to have the reputation of knowing the whole Bible by heart. He actually sat in the chimney corner, employing his mind in composing a sermon or two, and his hands in cutting and shaping and polishing bones for shoehorns and other little useful implements. The person who's writing the letter was his friend who would go and get those little things that he made and take them and sell them for him, and that was how he, um, one of the main ways he met his, um, his needs. At intervals, sitting there, and picture him, he's sitting there blind, carving, day after day. At intervals, he attempted to write poetry. On one occasion, as I paid him a visit, he repeated two or three pieces which he had composed. And since he had no friend to write them on paper, he had memorized them, laying them up in the storehouse within. How will this do, he asked me, as he repeated the following lines with a small smile, touched with some light lines of fear, lest he open himself to criticism. 
I rapidly copied the lines with my pencil as he uttered them, and I send them now for your insertion in the observer if you should think them worthy of preservation. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, picture the man writing this. You know he knows those seasons, sitting there in the darkness. My soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, the joys I feel and the bliss I share of those whose anxious spirits burn with strong desires for thy return. Where God, with such I haste to the place, where God my Savior shows his face. And I gladly take my station there and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, may I thy consolation share till from Mount Pisgah's lofty height I view my home and take my flight. In my immortal flesh I'll rise to seize the everlasting prize, and I'll shout while passing through the air, farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. Through the week, as I'm sharing the simple steps that God used to grow me closer to him in my prayer life, these steps, they're the ones that have made my times with him truly beautiful and sweet. It was the first time I really could say sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. Today on the handout, you have steps three and four. Step number three is be still. I'm sorry, is it three and four today? You know what? I skipped today, didn't I? I'm so sorry. Can what did we do? We did one and two. Okay. Oh, so we did two. We did three and four yesterday. So it's four and five. Okay. Um, well, okay. I did not move it to the right thing on my notes here. So I will do them from memory, and that's fine. <laughs> um, step four is Lamentations three, and I know what that is. Um, that's a, a passage in the Bible from which my favorite hymn comes. And it is, uh, in stillness and quietness is our strength. It is good for one to both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And in Lamentations 3 and 4, uh, I'm sorry, well, 3, 25 and 26, it says, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. And from that same passage comes the words, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. So that's the first one, then step four would be, be still. Sometimes when we're facing very urgent situations, um, being still is the hardest thing to do. We want to jump into action. We don't want to watch this situation escalate and and, um, turn into a disaster all around us. But God calls us to listen to him. 
and to hear his voice over the clamor of the urgency and the emergency that we're facing. He says, be still and know that I am God. Moses to Israel, stand still and watch the salvation of the Lord. So this, the step that I feel when I feel most pressured to take action, most urgent and, more, and most anxious, is I want my strength restored through stillness. Remember, he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Quietness and rest give strength. Be still. And remember also that when we're moving through our prayers, united, yoked together with him, we need to move at his pace. We can't just rush off ahead into a new song, leaving him behind. We want to stay with him. That's where our peace is. So we move in the direction we're looking. We look at him and we wait on the Lord. And one of my favorite examples of this is Daniel in the Bible. Daniel knows that he and the other wise men of Babylon are facing death unless they can answer the king's request for an interpretation of the dream. They are facing certain death. Daniel gets his friends together, they pray, and he goes to sleep. I looked at that and I thought, oh Lord, please grow my faith so that I can pray and go to sleep (laughs) facing death. (laughs) He prays and goes to sleep. And it's in his dream that God answers him. In stillness and quiet, we find the answers even in the very urgent situation. So that is step four, be still. Step five, many times when I know I need prayer the most, I am so exhausted, so drained, so emotionally empty, I can't even think of stringing words together. To even think of praying, which I know I need more than anything, feels like an added burden. I have no words to bring. When I am too tired to even form coherent thoughts or too weary to pray, I do step five, which is I pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. And that's not some new thought to me. Jesus did that. Martin Luther did that. Our brothers and sisters down through the ages have done this. Here are some of the ways that I follow their example. Sometimes I just pick up my Bible and open it to a random psalm, and I begin to read that. I read it phrase by phrase, asking the Holy Spirit to remind me how those words were true in my life, just letting the word of God flow into me and making those my prayers. Sometimes when I'm in the middle of a, a, a long period of time where there's, there's discouragement day after day after day, uh, I, I thought once how when I wake up in the morning, I don't just drink a whole bunch of water in the morning and that's all, you know, I'll never be thirsty again through the day. So I thought what I want to do is I want to treat my prayer life like I treat water. I want to be returning to intentional prayer, not just um, the, the constant acknowledgement to God, which I, I love and live in that as well. But I want intentional prayer throughout the day. And I use the Psalms as a guide many times to do that. So this is how I have found uh, as, a, as a framework that helps me to stay focused. Um, what's the date today? 30th. 30th? 31st. Okay, 31st. So what I do is I'm looking at the the second digit in a two-digit date, so one. So I would start with Psalm 1. 
If it were the 27th, I would start with Psalm 7. If it were the 23rd, I'd stop, start with Psalm 3. So I'm, I'm just using that as my framework. So the first hour, uh, if I were doing this today, in my first hour awake, I would read Psalm 1. And then if you need to set an alarm or a little reminder, um, the next hour I would read Psalm 11. The next hour, Psalm 21. Next hour, Psalm 31. And so on, all through the day. Returning to the prayer structure, these psalms that David and others have left for us. And when you do that, you'll begin to see this beautiful picture unfolding because David is all over the place in human experience in the psalms. Some of the psalms you will read will be psalms of David in deepest despair. When I felt that my foot was going down into the pit, thy love, O Lord, held me up. Um, And then there are other psalms just full of triumph. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And, And you begin to get a sense of how real. That was one of the ways that God opened me up to the the absolute realness of how he wants us talking to him. David is right out there with how he's feeling, but he doesn't stop with his feelings. He goes to the word of God for his answers. He'll acknowledge his feelings, but then he will acknowledge the sovereignty and the provision of God. Here's another way you can do it. When our boys were younger, my husband and I took them on a tour of the homestead of Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote the Little House on the Prairie books. And in the chair that she would sit in every night, there was a little um, table beside it. After she passed away, her Bible was always sitting there. They found in her Bible a little handwritten sheet that she had compiled uh, for various problems that she would face. And so she would write things like, when facing perplexities, read Psalm 41. When facing times of thanksgiving, read Psalm so-and-so. And so you can take your times, your devotional times, and begin to go through the Psalms and realize this is a Psalm of deliverance. The next time that I need reassurance and deliverance, I will read the Psalm and, and make yourself your own little sheet to stick in the front of your Bible. Praying the Psalms. We can use the Psalms as a guide to prayer structure. For example, some Psalms praise God as the creator of beauty. Some psalms are a prayer of praise for the history that he's brought Israel through. Begin praising him for the history of your life. I praise you, Lord, that when I was three years old, I first had my heart touched for you. And I praise you that when I was five, and I praise you. And and kind of think back at how God has guided and led it your life um, as prayer. So those are steps four and five. Be still and pray the psalms. During the rest of our time here today, I want to look at one of the most important prayer questions that most of us will face at one time or another. How do we make sense of things when we get the exact opposite of what we are praying for? Not silence, but the opposite of what we're praying for. How do we find peace when the answer doesn't look at all like what we were hoping or expecting. In fact, things look even worse than when we started praying. God showed me a a beautiful answer to this question. And in fact, in in finding that story, that was part of what began my my search 
uh, for a deeper understanding. And it's in the story of the Israelites and Moses and the Exodus. What was the heart prayer of the Israelites when they lived in Egypt? Freedom. Freedom. They had been born slaves. Their parents were born slaves. And yet there was that hope, that freedom, that promise. And yet, think about this. Most of those Israelites spent their entire lives praying for a freedom they never found. They never found that freedom. Even after God brought them out of Egypt and they were following that pillar of fire and cloud for the rest of their journey, they never found the freedom that they thought they needed. And a lot of us are doing the same thing today. Freedom is a major theme in the Bible. The Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. If the sun makes you free, you are free indeed. So I want to look at eight weeks of the story of Exodus. And in that eight-week period, I want to find the answers to three questions. What did freedom mean to the Israelites? What were they praying for? What did God want freedom to mean to them? And what does that mean for the rest of us today? How did they view freedom? What did God want them to see freedom as being? And what does that mean for us? And how does that change our prayers? Before we begin the countdown of the eight weeks, let's lay the foundation. God has sent Moses to Pharaoh to request that the Israelite slaves be allowed to go out into the desert to sacrifice. And Pharaoh is angry with the request, so he doubles their workload. He says, you've got to keep making the same amount of bricks, but you're not going to get the materials. You now have to go get the materials for yourself. And the slaves are desperate. Their foremen are being beaten. They're scared because they know they can't keep making the same amount of bricks because now they've got the extra work of the materials. So picking up this story in Exodus 5, verse 15. Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Can you imagine what kind of courage that might have taken? Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, and yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but it's not our fault. It's the fault of your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you say, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses, verse 22, returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on your people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Can you hear the desperation in that prayer? Why? Lord, is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh, he has brought nothing but trouble, and you're not acting, Lord. You're not rescuing them at all, like you said. Remember, Moses had been extremely reluctant about this whole thing in the first place. He didn't think 
he was up to the, doing the mission. He didn't think he had the skills for it. And here we are right out of the gate, and it's looking like a disaster. Moses is doing here and feeling here exactly like I have found and like many of us have when we see things going bad and when disaster looms. We wonder what went wrong. Surely this cannot be God's plan. Surely this is not what he has in mind. When, when things are going good, it's easy to look around and say, praise the Lord. We are following his will. We can feel assured in this moment, you know, things are, things are good. Things are positive. But when disaster comes, our confidence evaporates, and we wonder, have we missed God's will? What happened? Surely this isn't what God had in mind. And you can hear Moses just full of this uncertainty and fear. You're not rescuing them at all, God. You're not rescuing. And here is how God answers the very next verse, Exodus 6, 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. What God is saying is actually, Moses, Pharaoh isn't just going to passively say, okay, go ahead. He's going to forcefully send you on your way because my hand is mighty and is going to effect this. Now, think about how many times God answers questions in the Bible this way. Moses asked God, is this what you had in mind? And what did God say? Now you will see what I will do. God doesn't tell Moses what's in his mind. He just says, now you'll see what I will do. Um, God did that with Job. Job and his friends have been having this great long dialogue about the disasters that have befallen Job. And finally, when God speaks... God does not answer any questions that have so far been asked. He says, I'm going to ask you some questions, Job. Stand up like a man and answer these if you can. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of this earth? Where were you when I said to the ocean, this far you can come and no farther? Where are the storehouses of hail, Job? Tell me if you know. And hey, Job, can you put a hook in the mouth of the sea monster and bring it where you want it to go? God is not answering Job's questions. God is replacing in Job's heart a vision of himself and what he can do. What he can do. Another time. Jesus is here on earth. John the Baptist has devoted his life to the service of God, to following the calling God placed on his. In, in fact, when his disciples were, when John's disciples were just getting a little nervous that Jesus was coming into their territory, John says, no, he must increase and I must decrease. And then John ends up in prison. Is this what you had in mind, Lord? He calls his disciples to him. He says, go ask Jesus, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? Surely it's not supposed to look like this. Surely I'm not supposed to be languishing here in prison. The disciples of John go to Jesus and the Bible says, Jesus doesn't answer that question. Jesus immediately does what? Begins healing. He is restoring sight. He's restoring hearing. He's healing the lame. He's raising people from the dead. And at the end of this um, accelerated healing episode, he turns to John's disciples. He says, go tell John what you saw me do. 
what you saw me do. He doesn't answer with words. He answers with action. And this is a key piece of the picture in our prayer life. In the bad times, the hard times, the dark times, the disastrous times, those are the times that we will see what God will do. All of us here are going to to face those times. We may be in them now. I know some here are because I've been talking with you and praying with you, and I know others will be. And in those times, we must let by faith the voice of God speak in our heart and hear him say, now you will see what I will do. So this is the background to the eight weeks. Moses doesn't think things are looking great. God says, now you will see what I will do. We're going to start Exodus twelve thirty on the night of the 10th plague, the Passover. Reading from Exodus chapter 12, verse 30. And I'm just going to skip on through the story. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and go. Going on to verse 35. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed for Amazes to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Can you picture that? 600,000 men, women and children, all the livestock, loaded down with silver and gold and fine clothes, and they are triumphant. They are jubilant. This caravan stretches as far as the eye can see, and they are going to the promised land after 430 years of slavery. They're carrying the bones of Joseph, just like their parents and their grandparents told them what happened, and they are caught up in the middle of this glorious deliverance. Who would have thought we would see it with our own eyes? And to make it even better, right in front of them is the visible presence of God. There is a pillar of fire and cloud so that uh, Exodus 13, 21 says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night, neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And this is what freedom looked like to them. Can you imagine the joy they felt in the beginning of that journey? One glorious, overwhelming celebration filled with riches and clothes and hope and God right there in front of them. And they can travel even by night in this beautiful, soft, glowing light and get to the promised land even quicker. And we don't even have to guess how they felt because the Bible tells us in Exodus 14, verse 8, that they were marching triumphantly. Marching triumphantly. What victory, what joy. They had been born slaves, their parents had been born slaves, and deliverance had been talked about, but they had never pictured it like this. God is with them, and it is incredible. And they followed the pillar of God right up to the Red Sea. Exodus 14, verse 8 says, the Israelites are marching triumphantly. Two verses later, verse 10, the Israelites look up, 
and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried to the Lord. Just that fast, they've done a 180-degree turn from triumph to terror. And they panic because they see what? The Egyptians. They see Pharaoh and his army. They panic because their view has changed. Their perspective has changed. Because they take their cues from their perception of events around them, they are still slaves to their perception. And so are we. If we look at our circumstances and things are going great and we feel, oh, all's well, this is wonderful, praise the Lord, we'll feel good. If we see dark and discouraging and bleak outlooks and we feel afraid, we need to change our view. Remember prayer step number two? What is it? Open my eyes. Change my view of this. We need to change our view and think for a minute. Where's the pillar of cloud and fire when all this is going on? Right there where it always was. They're just not looking at it anymore. They are panicked because they're looking at the wrong thing. It was right where it had always been. And when the enemy comes after us, we need to stop looking at the enemy. Stop looking at the discouraging, hopeless circumstances that surround us. Because where's God? He's right where he's always been. His sovereignty, his power, his word of promise, it's all there. Same as it was when we felt good. We don't need to be slaves to our feelings, to our perceptions. Verse 10, they're terrified. They cry out to God for help. In verse 11, they're simultaneously blaming Moses and wishing they were slaves again. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They are so blind. They are such slaves still to their perception that they think they have two options. They think their options are either to be slaves or be dead. Those are the only two options they see. They're not looking at God. They don't see the deliverance that he will effect for them. They're not looking at that. Remember step four, be still. That's what Moses tells them. Stand still. Watch the salvation of the Lord. And when we face situations where we're tempted to panic, we need to lift our eyes to God. Stop looking at the circumstances and look to our deliverance. Because either way, the action is going to come from God. The will of God will be done. The difference will be in our hearts. We can either wait in panic and fear until deliverance comes, or we can fix our eyes on him and be in perfect peace. He says, I will keep in perfect peace the one whose eyes are stayed on me because he trusts in me. The Israelites didn't yet know that, and they're in full panic mode. The only picture uh, outcome they can picture is the army closing in and killing them. Why didn't they have any uh, pictures of deliverance in their mind? Because they thought they were the only ones out there to fight, and they knew they couldn't do it. If we are joined together with God in the situations we face, we are joined with all power, all provision, all love. We're not alone in the situations. We're not responsible for getting ourselves 
through the situation. We want to come alongside the answer to all we need and trust him for deliverance. And so at the Red Sea, the God of the never-ending miracles, he steps in and the Israelites walk through on dry ground with walls of water on either side. And standing on the far shore, they see their captors, their dreaded enemy, destroyed forever. Can you picture how that must have felt? That is true freedom right there. They are euphoric. Miriam grabs a tambourine and everyone is singing. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. And the song goes on and on and on. All of their adrenaline, all of their relief, all of their joy. This is freedom. All of their praise overflowing to God. They are now filled with more confidence than when they left Egypt. Now they are rich, they are free, and they are on the way to the promised land, and the enemy is destroyed forever. And the next day, God leads them into the desert for three days with no water. They don't even get one day to sit there and relax and feel safe and regroup and revel in this new, more complete freedom. Now there's a whole new enemy they never even imagined. They have no water. Why does God design our journey that we have such points of triumphant joy followed by such lows? It's almost like we can't trust the joy because we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know? Why does he save in victory one day and the next day he sends Israelite forward with no water? Why such seeming capriciousness in the blessings He gives the answer a little later in the story. But for three days, they head out into that hot, dry desert. They're growing more and more thirsty. Finally, they arrive at Mara. There's water. It's bitter. They can't drink it. They cry out in despair. Moses throws a tree in. They can drink their water. And they go on to Elam. The Bible calls it a place of 12 springs and 70 palms. And they can camp there for a little time. But soon enough, they're out in the desert again, and everyone is upset. Reading Exodus 16, verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. It has now been one and a half months since they left Egypt. In those six weeks, the people have said that they would rather be slaves twice once at the Red Sea, and now when they're afraid, they're not going to have food. In this period of six weeks, they've gone from triumphant deliverance, and then they're repeatedly complaining and dissatisfied. And now, not only are they complaining and dissatisfied, they're looking back with fond nostalgia on being slaves. Oh, if only we could go back to where we were slaves. It was so good then. We, we used to think we wanted freedom, but following God isn't what we thought it was going to be. It's way harder. We just want to be slaves again. Back to Exodus 16, and when the Israelites complained that they had good food in Egypt, God sends the blessing of the manna. And he tells everyone, gather as much as you need for today. For today. Now, it seems to me that some of the Israelites may have decided they didn't like this dependence on God 
because you never knew when he was not coming through on the timing you had in mind. So they're going to reserve a little of his blessing, hold it back and hoard it just in case he doesn't come through as quickly the next time. And we know the manna becomes filled with worms and, and stinks. When we are yoked together in prayer with God, when we are living connected with him, we trust him for the timing of the answers. We trust the timing of the blessings. The manna, that blessing came for just that day. We don't get to hoard our blessings up in case we want God to move and he doesn't seem moving so fast. No, he says, trust me for the timing. On with the journey in Exodus. Israel is following the pillar of cloud, the visible leading of God. They are eagerly going wherever that cloud leads them. And again, they end up in a place with no water. Why do we end up in these types of places when we're following God? Why? They were obeying. And yet, even in complete obedience, they are not going to survive long enough to reach the promise. Even in complete obedience. God leads every one of us into deserts. We should not be surprised by the deserts. Don't think that you are not in God's plan or that you have been abandoned when you find yourself in the desert with no water. He will lead us up against a brick wall. The Spirit led Jesus out into the desert to be tempted. God's direct leading will take each of us directly to hard tests of faith. We will come to places of complete dependence and places that are so hopeless that we think that the objectives and the dreams of our lives have died. We will pray for deliverance. And resources, and we will know that our patience is insufficient to the need. Israel doesn't understand this. They want to escape their trials. I understand that. Israel is not welcoming these hard places. They don't view them as an opportunity for God's power. They view them as a sign of abandonment. They say to Moses, is the Lord with us or not? We talked about that yesterday. That's the prayer of tempting God to look at all the provisions that he's given to us and say, well, is he with us or not? At this point, um, Moses turns to God with a sense that people are about ready to stone him to death. They, they have had it with this journey. And here is how God gives water the second time. This is Exodus 17, verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Moses doesn't get to go choose the rock that he's going to strike. It is a rock that God designates. And in designating it, God doesn't say, go look for a rock of this shape with this coloring. He says, I will go before you and stand on that rock and you come and strike it. And so what he says to us when we reach our hard places is he says, I will come before you in all that you are facing and you take the hand uh, in your hand the power the promises that you have already seen me affect in your life and by faith you come up to those situations I am there with you and by faith you strike that rock and your impossible situation will suddenly pour out impossible blessings and you will be refreshed for your journey it's been about seven weeks now since they left Egypt. 
And in those seven weeks, they have faced certain death four times. Four times. Not quite once a week. More like once every week and a half. At the Red Sea, dying of thirst at Mara, running out of food, dying of thirst again. And now here come the Amalekites. (laughs) Do you ever feel like you can't catch a break? (laughs) It's just one thing after another, after another, after another. This is the first time we hear about Joshua. Moses appoints him to lead the fighting, and Moses and Aaron and Hur go up on the mountain. And as long as Moses has that rod of God raised, Joshua is winning. When the rod is lowered, Joshua is losing. And at some point, Moses can no longer physically hold that rod up. Aaron and Hur find a stone for him, and they sit him down, and they each hold his arms up. Sometimes... As we are called to a deeper walk with God in prayer, he will show us brothers and sisters who are physically unable to go on in faith. And when we see them, we can come alongside them and we can hold them up in prayer. We need to have the Holy Spirit open our eyes. And that is a prayer that he's put in my heart. Sometimes when I just, I come to him, I I feel like I've already said over and over all the things he knows are are on my, my prayer list, and I say, Lord, who should I pray for? Who should I pray for? There are people who are so tired, so worn out, so in the valley. Let me come alongside them and pray. You know, I used to think about the Israelites with mixed emotions. You know, uh, we were talking earlier about knowing the will of God. So in situations in my life where I've been trying to to discern and pray for seeing the hand of God, knowing the will of God, I would think, boy, the Israelites, they sure had an easy time of that, didn't they? (laughs) All they had to do is look where the cloud was and follow it. They didn't have to guess, should I go in this direction or should I go in that direction? All they had to do was, you know, they knew easily where they were supposed to be moving. They just had to follow the cloud. But on the other hand, I felt sort of some some pity for them because I thought, why couldn't God have made it just a little bit easier on them than this journey? You know, wasn't 430 years of slavery enough hard times for a while? Why couldn't he give them sort of this gentle path of adjustment on their way to their new life? Why was this constant roller coaster of up and down and up and down? You're about to die and now you're saved and now you're going to die again and now you're saved again and and, and so now we're at the end of the eight weeks. Five times they have faced certain death. Reading Exodus 19, verse 1 and onward. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai and camped in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Isn't that beautiful? God says to Israel, you have just seen firsthand what I can do how I brought you to myself. Remember back at the beginning when Moses goes to God and says, is this what you had in mind? God says to Moses, now you will see what I will do. And they come through 
eight weeks together of triumph and disaster, and they get to Sinai, and God says, now you have seen yourselves what I did. I brought you on eagle's wings to myself. And that is the ultimate destination for all of us. The complete answer to every prayer we will ever face. The greatest blessing to have God bringing us to himself. And look how he didn't. He didn't do it through an easy journey. He brings us to himself through repeated trials, disasters, um, horrific situations where we can see for ourselves what he does. And that brings us on eagle's wings. When we go through those hard times, it's not a sign that God isn't with us. It's not a sign he hasn't heard our prayer. He's bringing us to himself. Israel thought God was bringing them to the promised land, but he was bringing them to himself. And he's doing that for each of us. Remember the three questions? Praise the Lord indeed. The three questions. As Israel prayed for freedom, what were they praying for? What did that look like for them? What did God want it to look like for them? And what does that mean for you and me in our prayers today? When I sat with that and got quiet with God, it completely changed my prayers. I used to think that being free from worry meant that I didn't have anything to worry about. If everything was going well, I was free from worry. Praise the Lord. I used to think that being free from need meant that I had enough resources. Got money in the bank to pay the bills this month. Thank you, God. When I have enough resources, I don't have need. I'm free from need. And I was defining freedom just like the Israelites did. The Israelites wanted freedom from slavery. They wanted freedom from the Egyptians, freedom from thirst, freedom from hunger, freedom from attack. But God wanted them to find freedom in him. Freedom in his power, freedom in his care, freedom in what they saw him do over and over and over in their lives. Remember how my my prayers changed when I realized that, that the key is if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done. The freedom is not from anything. The answers are not apart in in individual situations. The answer is in connection with Jesus. We're no longer praying as we seek answers. We are asking God, we want to come to where you are, Lord, in this situation we're praying about. We want to join with you. We want to follow you as you are moving and, and, and working in this situation. We want to stay yoked together with you, moving when you move, stopping when you stop. And as soon as we pray that prayer, we have stepped into the answer of what we are praying for. We are now living in the answer. We're not seeking it. The culmination might be 40 years away like it was for Caleb. But we're not seeking this thing anymore. We're living it. We are living in the answer, connected with God. God says to each one of us, we no longer need to be slaves to our perception. Our sense of well-being, our sense of peace doesn't need to be shackled to circumstances around us. Because in everything we face, we will see what he will do. And we can rejoice greatly that our prayers are heard. And we are living in the answer because he is bringing us to himself, and he is the answer. And we are now living and moving in him. We live and move and have our being.
To close our time together today, I want to share with you one more way that I love to pray. And it has to do also with the Psalms. The Psalms are both prayers and songs. And so sometimes I just love to sit down at the piano and pray the hymns that have been left for us by our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. And um, I went through the hymnal. Do you all have a hymnal there in front of you? Take it out. I made a list 